I, I remember like when I went to the class reunion and people were like, oh, you used to tell all these stories in class. And I was like, I tell stories. I don't remember any of that because it's, my life was such a, I felt like Dexter half the time. Mm. When I'd be imagining so much stuff. M. Legend Brown has always walked the line between creative and crazy. When he was a child, his imagination was literally unstoppable. M. Legend always just saw things differently. This was refreshing to many people and irritating to others. M. Legend had one dream, and that was to make movies. His path to getting there involved homelessness, illness, loss, and adversity. But on the other side of it all, he found himself producing films and winning awards for them. His life path started with him making up stories for anyone, or anything, who would listen. Welcome back to Kavah the Podcast. I'm Kelly Archibald, and I want to thank you for tuning in. We live in a crazy world, so we made this podcast to shine some hope into your life. Our guests have lived through some incredible things, both good and bad, and they want to share their stories with you. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. If you've been inspired or encouraged by these stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon or contacting us about sponsorship opportunities. You can find more information about us at kavahpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. So we used to to live off of... uh... 549, no, yeah, 549 on Blackland. And uh, we, I mean, it was, we lived like maybe 10 miles from the next house. But every day when I would get out there, tell this story about this kid named George. That's all I remember. I don't even remember the name of the, the, <laughs> the stories. I just remember it was about George. And, uh, and then the kids would come down and they'd all be sitting on the lawn and mom be out there passing out Kool-Aid and, and she'd be yelling at the top of her lungs, you gotta stop all this. And then I remember my imagination got so crazy that I would, I would literally be imagining everything. I'd even be talking to plants and she threatened to put me in the state hospital. Oh my goodness. Do you remember Miss Epps? Yes, I know Miss Epps. So one day Miss Epps pulls me to the side and she says, Michael, why are you crying? Now she's already. I know. And I said, well, because my mother said, don't put me in the state hospital. <laughs> and she says, why? I said, because I just can't control all of this energy in my head. And so she took me to the library and she handed me Tom Sawyer. Mm. And Tom Sawyer, like, brought the world down about this far. Mm. And so I was still uh, spinning and spinning out of control. And so I went back to her and I was like, this is helping, but it's not helping a lot. She says, okay. She took a pad, a little uh, 11, one of those legal notepads. Mm-hmm. And she says, she gave me a pen and she says, now write down everything that's going on in your head. Wow. And that just like brought the world down to. Yeah. And I just would write pages of, and she would buy these notebooks every day. Mrs. Epps was a kind soul who saw past M. Legend's hyper behavior and believed in him. Her gentleness shaped the trajectory of his life. The poor young man barely understood what was going on with him, so he needed several adult figures to lend a helping hand. Okay, was she not just so wonderful? She was. 
I mean, we had no idea how wonderful Miss Epps was until now, I think. And mm, is she yes. still living? No, I don't oh. think so. I don't think so. Yeah, she was. I wanted to go back to her and Miss Sneed and just tell them oh. how much. Miss Sneed helped me because she put me, I was in a print shop and it was so creative that it allowed me yes. to, to really be creative. And then she encouraged me to get into art class mm. and, and really pick up the art and draw. And, because I was just all over the place. And then we had this, I don't remember who taught this advertising class. Hmm. Somebody taught an advertising class. And the, and the teacher, she would be sitting at the door waiting every morning. She'd be like, Michael, what do you got today? What do you got today? Oh, that's so good. I can't remember who that was, though. But she would always sit there and wait by the door. And she's like, what do you got today? What story you got today? And so that's probably the highlight of my childhood that I remember Yeah. when it comes to what I do in storytelling and then uh, I don't oh I remember my mom used to get so mad at me because we would buy these little notebooks she would buy me these notebooks and I would draw pictures on the edge of them uh -huh. and then wrote you know how we wrote them yes. back and forth to make characters yes. move and then I would write little stories to go with them so yeah she, wow. was, just, yeah, she was pissed off she was you don't have to get a job because I can't afford these books all the time. <laughs> and I take the whole legal pad and paper that she would buy for the first of the year and I draw on each. Oh, wow. And so. That's awesome. I thought that was my first introduction to storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think heroes, uh, I think like Miss Epps, she is a hero. Mm -hmm. And we just did not know it. Um, and I think those, <clears throat> the kinds of people that really make a difference like in children's lives like she saw you mm -hmm. she knew what mm -hmm. you were going through mm -hmm. and she knew some steps that you could take to help you have success yeah and so those kinds of people i think are so important they are they're miss need man miss need was yes. such a man she was so cool of a teacher mr reeves yes <clears throat> and even um who drove our bus was uh he was really <laughs> Can you his name? I don't know. Oh, my goodness. He always had this big old cigar hanging out of his mouth. Coach Webb was a big, Coach yeah. Eubanks, was, they were yeah. all big influences in our lives. But they weren't your typical cape-wearing heroes. They right. were just people who, who spoke true to you, real to you, yes. and sit and talk to you. I remember one day, I was, I was me and Kathy sitting outside of the school. We crying because we missed the bus. And Coach Anderson comes out there, and he goes, what is wrong with y'all? I take it home. And he takes us home that day. And that was like the best day. So that's like, sweet. And you know, teachers can't do that today. Right. And that's the sad thing. It's like we were, they had freedom that, that really is not existent today. And yeah. They can't sit. They barely can sit in the classroom with a kid one-on-one. And have a conversation because, you know, there's so much backlash. Right, right. But how do you teach someone? How do you guide someone that needs... You don't even get a chance to see the special needs. In the, like, I was special needs. I needed that one-on-one. -on -one. This is what you're going through. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not slow. We know you're not slow. Right. We know you're not... You, you were know. a little too fast. That was too Which fast. I get it. These teachers helped him focus his energy into something powerful but his mom didn't quite see his creative potential right away. So your family of origin, did you have any siblings, brothers? One, one sister, Kathy. Kathy, okay. Yeah, I think. And uh, uh, so we lived, my, my, me and my sister lived together, and then my cousin Carmen and Kim. Yes. Now, 
Kim. Kim. Is Kim my grade? Yes. And Kim. Carmen, I think, is my sister's grade. Yes. Okay. And so. we all kind of just really intertwined together. Mm -hmm. And and uh, my mom was really, really very uh, strong in her faith, so we would have to go to church nonstop. And the only way I could be creative is, if you fell asleep in church, I was going to posterize you. <laughs> I was going to draw a picture of you, and I had so <laughs> much trouble behind that. Oh, my goodness. That's how I perfected my art, is because yeah. people would fall asleep in church, and I would draw. And then, what did you do after high school? <clears throat> I joined uh, the police academy. Oh, because I told my mom right when I got ready to graduate, I said, I want, I want to go make movies. And she was like, okay, now you tell me one black movie maker. And I was wow. like, we're going to agree to, you know, support you on that. And I was like, well, that's Spike Lee. Yes. She's like, well, uh, Spike had only made one movie at the time. And it was, okay. it, it was just a little, she's got to have it so it wasn't anything. Right. And she was like, yeah, no. And so she was like, uh, you can find some other thing we'll support you on. So I decided to go into the criminal justice field. And at the time, to be honest with you, it was so racist at the time that I was like, oh, I just came out of a rough wall. I really don't. I just want to find a different path. M. Legend wandered from career to career for a while, yearning for some way to express his creativity. Even in the most dreary environments, people continued to be intrigued by his nonstop storytelling. So I went into landscaping. Oh, yeah. And um, and then then I went from there to industrial work, and once I got in the industrial field, I picked up writing again. I don't know why I picked up writing again, and it was so crazy because you got all these hardcore big men, and they yeah. were all rough and tumble and talk all kind of ways. But every day they would wait for me to bring a story in there, and I was writing love stories at the time. They'd be like, and and one day <laughs> I forgot to bring the story, and they were threatening me. You come tomorrow, and you ain't got no stories. Uh, it's going to be on. I was like, you big burly man in here wouldn't read love stories? Are you crazy? That is hilarious. Yeah, and that's what kind of propelled me into thinking what it, I started writing books. And I wrote a book about the passing of my grandmother and how mm. it affected me. And it was such a tough, tough read. But it took so long for people to read it and get back to me. Mm. And I was thinking, well, I don't want to write books because of this. Yeah. Got just the time left. Between, and I don't know if I'm off subject of it. No, you're good. Uh, the time length between I'm giving somebody the book and then somebody reading it and then they right. get back to me, it might be six months, and they were like, well, that's a tough read. I couldn't really read it. And I had to go back to it, pick it up, and I was like, oh, I want something with a little bit more right. uh, instant impact. M. Legend's desire to make movies just grew stronger and stronger. Eventually, he just had to do something about it. I don't know how, wait, who introduced me directly to the, oh, I remember. So I used to live in Dallas off of this, off of Westmoreland and Cockrell Hill. Mm -hmm. And there was a little theater down there, a little mom and pop theater where you could go in and watch movies all day mm -hmm. for a dollar. And so we went in there and Lean On Me had just came out mm. with, with uh, Morgan Freeman. Yes. And I went in there and I watched that movie with a group of people. It was about 50 of us. And we never moved. Mm -hmm. We laughed. We cried. Mm -hmm. We clapped. We cheered. Every time at the same points in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it was all racist. It was, And I just sat there in the back of the theater thinking, that's what I want mm -hmm. to do. And when I was walking home, I was like, that is exactly what I wow. want to do. 
and I didn't know how to get there, so it took me another 10 years. Leaving there, though, I knew that's what I wanted to do, so I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know who to talk to, so thanks to Miss Epps, who introduced me to the library, everything's in the library. Yes. So I spent Dallas, downtown Dallas has one of the hugest film collections and oh. movie departments. They had like a whole floor dedicated to film. Wow. So me, being an overachiever, <laughs> I would go and I would start on the very first section and I would pull every book out of that row and set it on a desk. And I would start reading it. I'd go there every day at 9 o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't leave till they closed at 10 o'clock. Wow. And I would read all those books. And then they, they would get so, <laughs> the librarians would get so mad at me. And they would literally put up every book that night. And I'd come in the next morning and I'd take every book back off the shelf that I didn't read and put it back on the desk. And so one of the, the librarians came over. She said, listen, we can't keep doing this. She says, what are you doing? I said, I'm just trying to learn how to make a, I want to learn how to make films. And so she said, okay, I'll tell you what. You put every book that you've read, you put it on this side, we'll put it up. If you don't put it, if you, if you leave it on this side, we won't touch it. But if you don't come one day, this ends. And I went there every day for two years. Wow. And I literally read every book they had on filmmaking. Okay. You educated yourself. You have such a drive. Right. That is amazing. Right. So all of that stuff that was going on in your head as a child, you finally found a way to go, okay, this is how this should be funneled. Almost, almost. Because okay. it still was like, <laughs> still, still now if I stop talking. It, <laughs> but it was, it was. Until I started to actually put it on canvas is then when it started to quiet down to a place mm. where I could manage it. Even I'd be sitting there reading all those books and I'd find myself looking at some homeless guys out the window mm. and then trying to tell what they're doing and writing a story behind them. They'd be out there moving and and talking to each other and I'd be like, so Joe, what you do today? And he'd go, well, I do none today. So as they're talking to each other, I'm feeling the narrative. <laughs> M. Legend just had to be a filmmaker, even if no one was willing to teach him, even if it cost him everything. He couldn't ignore this itch to make films. But I would, I actually treated that like it was a job, and I was laid off for two years, didn't have any money, and me and my cousin would scrape up money by playing basketball just to get us something to eat every day. Oh, wow. And uh, so from there, I, I read every book. I read screenwriting books. So my, I wrote my very first script. I was very excited about it. It was called, what was it called? I, think it was, I changed it to Alexandria Diaries, but I don't know what the name of it was before that. Uh, so I took it to this screenwriting association in Dallas. Uh -huh. I was very proud. It's 120 pages. And they mutilated me. I mean, I walked out of there with my tail between my legs. I was hurt. And so I, they told me, oh, you're not a writer, blah, blah, blah. So I went back, continued to read some more, study, and I would call. I had no, anybody that I thought could help me, I would call. Mm -hmm. I called Michael Baston. And he's, you know, he was on the radio. He mm -hmm. was coming to town in these bookstores. And he was a novel writer, but I didn't know. I just thought a writer was a writer. Right. And then so he would talk, he would literally talk to me and I told him I was a producer. That was so crazy, too, because when I was a producer, I never thought of myself as a producer. Uh -huh. And then I would perfect my writing. By, I got this little job in this warehouse, 
and I would literally have to ride to work every day on the bus. Uh-huh. And so for those two hours on the bus, I would write. Mm. And I just keep writing, keep writing. And this is how God works. It would be so, I would be so mad at people be so noisy on the bus. Like, right. wow, wow, wow. And I was like, oh God, I can't take this. I need to write and I need it to be quiet. And so I didn't understand till maybe three years later. I can write while we're talking on the phone now. Wow. And still be in conversation with you. That was like God training me how wow. to write. Yes. And I was like, okay, so I could write in any situation because I was going to be in any situation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was homeless. And and all I had was a computer that my homeboy would let me, he would hang a cord out of his window at night and I would plug it up just so my computer could charge so I could write <laughs> while I'm sitting amongst wow. all these bums. The skills that the little boy who focused on imagining during class learned were coming in handy. He was able to now focus on his imagination during chaotic bus rides. He also had learned how to stretch a dollar and make things work out. But there came a time when he had to swallow his pride and ask for help from his family. So, so how old were you when you didn't have a home? I was uh, 40. Wow. Because I, well, that's a little few years earlier, but so I was making my very first feature film. Because I made a bunch of shorts, and we'll get back to that. So my apartment, I, I lost my job. Well, I hadn't lost my job. My job put me on part-time because he went to see a movie I made, and he was pissed. So he made me part-time. I was making $17 an hour, making boxes every day for two hours. So I had to pay my rent two hours at a, two weeks at a time. So I was making my first feature film, and I turned my apartment. So people volunteered to turn my apartment into a set. They oh, like, okay. like it was a stairwell where you could walk down. Yeah. They blanketed that out, and then they... Ah, oh, it's crazy. It was it was a beautiful thing I've ever seen, but it was crazy. <laughs> so one day I go to work. The one day I go to work, they have an inspection in their apartments. <laughs> and I come home and she's like, uh, you have to go. I was like, no, I was going to put it all back. In one week, we we're going to put it all back. You wouldn't even know. She's like, no, you got to go. Oh, no. <clears throat> and then pride got me. Mm. And I want to call home and go back. I'm 40 years old. Yeah. I'm going back home. Right. And... I literally was on the streets for about a week. Oh my goodness! And what woke me up was we were we we would sit behind this. Uh, but I had money though because I was working, so I'd go to I'd go to Seven Eleven and get me two hot dogs in the morning for breakfast because mm-hmm. you could get two hot dogs for a dollar. Yes. And a jungle juice at that time, which was the worst drink you could ever drink, but <laughs> it was like fifty cents. <laughs> uh huh. So two dollars and fifty cents, and then I would go to churches, which was directly across the street. Yes. And they had a three piece for a dollar ninety nine. There you go. So I had a little plan. And so I was sitting there one morning and this guy comes in. I don't know what his day was. He he hit his car real fast. And then he got in his car and sped off and all these homeless guys go into that bay and they're taking off their clothes and they're spraying each other. And I was like, I don't have to live out here. I got a, my mom's got a home. I feel like the prodigal son. I live here. Family's got a home. Yeah. And so I called that day and I cried all the way home. Oh, mm. crap. I'm like, I'm 40 years old. I'm moving back home. Oh, mm. God. And then, so to back up a few years earlier, 
it was hard to really see myself as a producer because I'd be writing on the bus and my computer was all broken and shattered and I had to hold it up like this and my shoes had holes in them. I could literally see the holes in my shoes through my computer. Oh my goodness. And this lady on the bus asked me one day because I had just made a short film and I was giving them away and people loved them. And this lady asked me one day, she said, what do you do? You write on this bus every day. Mm. I said, I, I do nothing. No, you do something. And then one lady from the back of the bus, he a producer. I'm like, oh my God, I got holes literally in my shoes. How can I be a producer? None of it made sense. And people called him crazy more now than they did when he was talking to plants. But he absolutely refused to give up. And then one day, a glimmer of hope finally arrived. And I remember going to Paul Quinn because I wanted to shoot a film one time. Mm -hmm. And I went to Paul Quinn High School. I mean, I had a Parkwood College, mm-hmm. and I was sitting with the dean of the college, and he says, the phone rings, we're sitting in there, and the phone rings, he says, I'm, a, I'm, on, I'm in here with a producer, just leave me alone, I'm thinking, oh my God, a producer's coming in here, oh, this is my lucky day. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> like, oh, this dude's talking about me, you gotta be kidding. Find out how M. Legend Brown achieved his dreams on the next episode of Caval the Podcast. Thanks again for listening to Kaval the Podcast. It's our joy to share these stories of hope in a confusing world. To keep up with our guests and adventures in podcasting, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would also love it if you gave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. It helps us continue to share hope around the world. We are so grateful for our listeners who financially support Kaval the Podcast. If you would like to become a supporter, please consider donating via Patreon or contacting us about sponsorship opportunities. You can find more information at kavahpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. I would like to thank my head writer, Rebecca Gray, and audio engineer, Meredith Douglas. I could not do this without you. You make this happen, and I can't express my gratitude. Maybe you've been listening because you've found yourself in a desperate place. We want you to know that all is not lost. It is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who've gone before you, those who've waited to find a positive outcome. Please be sure and connect with us via our website or social media. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.